You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by co-founder and CEO Simon Burns. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. For episode 11, we chat with Viswa Kalaru, CEO and founder of Enveda Biosciences. Listen in to find out the difference between tech bio and biotech. Viswa, thank you so much for joining us on First and Human. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. To kick it off, congratulations on the fundraising announcement. Great news. Thank you. It is somewhat of a rarity these days to get funded as a biotech company post-Series A. So I'll take that as a massive testament to what we're building. That it is. Give us an introduction on your background and maybe touch on what it was like to close a fundraising round in a bear market. Happy to. Before we get started, I'm founder and CEO of Enveda Bio. We are based on the thesis that nature is the best source of bioactive chemistry in the planet in that it has spent about 4 billion years in evolution. And the fact that it is simultaneously both the most validated and untapped source of medicines in that over 50% of medicines come from nature, yet 95% of nature is a chemical mystery. Back when uh, we started in Veda about three years ago, we had no idea how we were going to solve this problem, except that we knew we had to spend the next few years of our life solving it. So it's been a fun and exciting journey. And this last round, as you asked, has been particularly exciting. I think investors went from, hey, growth at all costs and build a long-term moat for indefensibility and build the Google of biotech to, hey, what are your assets? When is your first platform revenue going to come in? And I think Enveda was in a great position to show not just that the platform was able to deliver highly differentiated chemistry in the short term for problems that are very valuable and are widely acknowledged as valuable, but that we've built a team, a culture, and a structure that is able to translate our platform output to assets quickly and at a rate that is demonstrably increasing over time. So as I told some of the investors I was talking to, as a drug discovery company, your number one rule is to have drugs. And since we have more than you would expect, I think that's ultimately what catalyzed it. Well, it's really impressive. So congratulations again. Um, Thank you. You're, you're one of a few companies now in what you can probably start calling the recursion mafia. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about what you think made recursion so special and created this mafia that's emerging. And second, as you thought about building your culture, what were some of the key elements you took from recursion? What did you add to it? Uh, you guys are an interesting company in being so reimaginative in the drug discovery process. Yeah, lots of amazing lessons from recursion. One of the main things that spurred the mafia, so to speak, is that we were encouraged to think first principles before anything else. And I think someone recently posted on Twitter, of course, the world's wisdom distilled into a website, just kidding, that every time a company fails, they scar tissue because you are trying to avoid it. I think it may even be Paul Graham. And then someone took that and said, well, imagine the amount of scar tissue in drug discovery right? Because you have these large companies that are not set up to fail, where individual career risk is taken by innovation, but that reward is shared, right? So if you're a VP at a large company, it is not in your best interest to do something that is against the grain of the culture of your company. As we started turning over the rocks in drug discovery, we realized that there are lots of incredible lessons 
baked into the best practice, but there's also lots and lots of dogma. And so learning to quickly adapt to the former and then challenge the latter, I think is very important. And that was maybe one of the first and most important lessons from my time at Recursion, those that me and other excursionauts probably took away. And then a couple of others that I was reflecting on because I knew this question was going to come is, you know, the idea that we all speak vastly different languages and different disciplines. I think we live this reality at Recursion and we all have played telephone as young children. And it's so obvious as you pass 10 kids, you have no idea what the first kid said. Now, imagine that you were playing telephone in different languages. How bad would that be? And that is approximately the problem you have to solve as a founder as you bring an ML engineer, an AWS specialist, a biologist that just graduated from a PhD or a postdoc, and then a medicinal chemist that put 40 drugs in the clinic, and they all just don't even know what they're disagreeing about. We took a page out of big tech and we said, you know, there's lots of creator-customer relationships in such a company. And the people that can speak both languages are uniquely valuable. And let's call those people product managers. So since day one, we had a product organization at Enveda and we said, let's make that translation a lot easier and actually start to tap into this collective superpowers instead of the collective dogma or disagreement. I'd say lesson number three is something I already talked about in my intro, but if you're a drug discovery company, whether you're technology-driven or not, but especially if you're technology-driven, you need to have drugs, right? So if you can manage it, build your platform for yourself first before partnering it out. And I think thanks to companies like Recursion that paved the way for being able to do this, at Enveda, we were able to, for the first three years, say, we're not very interested in making our platform and approach be palatable to pharma. We're just going to build the best natural product drug discovery company that can be built in the 21st century and show that it can deliver substrate standing on the shoulders of billions of years of evolutionary intelligence. Let's segue to that. Making sense of billions of years of that intelligence is no easy feat. First, how did you come about the process of thinking about leveraging this biodiversity and creating a map? And second, how are you going about the execution of that? Yeah, it was an interesting insight. It was prompted by my dad who once asked me, why is biotech and drug discovery so difficult, right? Because as a middle-class South Indian boy, the easy, well-trodden path is to study computer science and go become a CEO in Silicon Valley. And my dad was like, what is this whole startup and why are you interested in solving this problem? And I realized his question, and he spent many years running a pharmacy in my South Indian town and then actually did justice to his law degree and started a law practice. But I realized he had no science background, right? He had no context. And the question was so simple that it deserved a simple enough answer. And so I took a whole couple of days and I got back to him and I said, drug discovery is hard because things that work in the lab don't work in people. That was the only way I knew to describe it to someone that was not in the industry. And immediately as I framed the problem that way, and I expected this response, and that's exactly what he said to me. He said, well, what if you started with things that do work in people? And I said, what are you talking about? And then he reminded me that medicines from plants are not alternate medicine in India. In fact, as a pharmacy owner, he sold hundreds of thousands of doses over many, many years and reminded me that as a young child, I had an episode of jaundice 
that was treated by a medicinal plant. And in fact, there is no treatment for liver inflammation, as we well know today, whether it occurs in an idiopathic form or NASH or an alcoholic liver disease. And that really rung a bell. Of course, my initial reaction was, well, none of that's real. It's hocus-pocus snake oil. It's not placebo-controlled. And then I realized, well, if whenever you make a summary judgment about something that you don't really know, you're wrong, right? And that's my number one takeaway from graduate school. And that's when I discovered that's the very origin of the pharmaceutical industry. That's how we found aspirin and metformin and morphine and quinine. And not only did they shape the pharmaceutical industry, but apparently the very contours of colonialism, where British and Western powers had to first fight to get the chinchona bark so that they could have enough quinine, so they could pre-treat their soldiers, so they could take over South American colonies without getting malaria. And I said, wow, turns out these human priors are actually pretty powerful. If you've ever heard of the Lindy effect, I think it approximately goes something like whenever you observe a phenomenon, you assume you've observed it at the half point. So if something's been around for a thousand years, safe to say it'll be around for a thousand more. And I realized, well, if these priors were generated over thousands of years, then they probably will be around for a lot longer. Why not harvest them? That was the core insight. Then the next question was, well, how do you go about actually solving this problem, right? Why has the industry stopped going after the next aspirate? And how do we tell that story? Luckily for me, there was a company called GW Pharmaceuticals that had gotten a landmark approval for a drug called Epidiolix. In fact, there was a lot of roots for that in Colorado, but the ancient roots went back thousands of years to India and China and the semi-modern roots to a paper published in the 1840s by a physician in the East India Army. And just as I was thinking about this idea, this approval came about, and little did I know, but GW would go on to sell that natural product without MOA and target information for $7 billion to Jazz three years later, right? Lots of really cool things I could dig into there, but it was enough for me that there was a company here that leveraged human priors and clinical observations to take what was kind of known information and turn it into an asset about 180 years later, All right? And so I said, what will it take to do more and more of that? And that's when I discovered the key problem, which is you don't really know how to search for new drugs in mixtures of unknown compounds. And the fact that most of nature was actually unknown compounds. You know, I won't walk through the full story here, but over the course of several weeks and months, I realized that on average, 99% of a medicinal plant is unknown chemistry. About 75 to 80% of a tomato, which 2 billion people eat every day, is unknown chemistry. And about 80% of the human blood is unknown chemistry. As in, if I took a vial of your blood and ran it through a mass spec, about 80% of the masses don't have a confidently annotated structure. I was surprised because as a biologist, I thought chemistry was a solved science, right? Of course, sequencing the human genome and the genomes of everything around us, it was a fantastic achievement, but we share 50% homology with a banana and 99% with an ape. And so I said, wow, why can't we do to chemistry what we've done to biology? Let's go about trying to solve this because it is already, as I mentioned before, the most prolific source of drugs and products known to man but it also seems to be the most untapped. So the third piece is, okay, how did I go about executing it? 
the honest to God answer here is I had no idea. I just knew I had to solve the problem. And I said, what are the two, three big things I need to tackle here over the next six to 12 months? Who are the people that will help me tackle them? And cold email, show up at their office, do what it takes to get a meeting, get them excited about this and, you know, throw their hat in the ring and get started. I love it. Well, if you ever need a second name for whatever reason, IP or something, you can go with Lindy Biosciences. Uh, I like, (laughs) I know. I feel Um, like that's definitely a good suggestion. Would love to hear more about some of the regulatory challenges. You mentioned no MOA, no target. You've done a lot of work in the more traditional regulatory framework. What have you learned that's different about working with natural products? Yeah, there's a lot of unique challenges to natural products, which may have been roadblocks in the 90s. And they're the perfect problem because you know the problems within the problems. And you then say, okay, does today's technology solve them? Apart from the regulatory advantages, which I'll get to, some of the primary challenges, the way we think about it, and we're able to distill from hundreds of hours of skeptical conversations with people in the industry, is one, the inability to prioritize lead-like structures. So we know there's probably tens of millions of unique compounds in nature, if not more. And there's a lot of very, very attractive chemistry in there, but it is dispersed within a lot of chemistry that may not be attractive the way we design or define orally available small molecules today. And we call this the chemical annotation problem. What are the needles in nature's haystack, so to speak, quite literally? The second is, now you have a mixture of unknown compounds. How do you find the needle in the haystack, but then you know that it's the needle that's active, right? You have an extract, it has anti-cancer activity, or it has neuroprotective activity, how do you get to the active molecule or the salicylic acid in the willow bark extract, which ultimately gave us aspirin? And third is, if you're able to then search through this space and find the molecule you like, which you think you'll be able to modify, tweak, store stably, manufacture, then you have to say, okay, it's active. Now you have all of these things, but you then have to go out and actually get enough of this material to enable preclinical, clinical, and commercial development. And funnily enough, I think all three of these problems are imminently solvable, and we've made massive progress, if not solving them entirely over the last three years. So to solve the first one, we built what I like to call the alpha fold for chemistry. So using some of the same large language model, generative AI architecture as ChatGPT, we're able to read mass fragmentation patterns of molecules and predict properties and structure, just like AlphaFold does that for amino acid sequences. So today, without needing to isolate, purify individual molecules and send them off to a lengthy NMR experiment, we can just say, hey, let's do a mass spec experiment, which can take 20 minutes for thousands of fingerprints and be able to chemically annotate that mixture. The second piece is we've solved that a number of different ways and built at least three distinct platforms. But the short answer is, we break up the mixture into a few deterministic pieces, ask whether there's a correlation of putative active molecule with the activity of that mixture, and use good old-fashioned statistics in addition to lab automation and metabolomics to find the active molecule. What used to take weeks for a single project, so you take a plant and you take a biological activity, we've reduced it down to the matter of days. In many cases, we can do it the whole cycle in a week. And earlier this year, I challenged my team to industrialize this process. In a period of about three months, 
we found 100 completely new bioactive molecules from nature, which I'm told is equal to about the output of 10 or 20 academic labs from a whole year. And then third, I think I don't even need to pitch this, but there's enough VCs and founders that have built synthetic biology companies where you can make more things, right? You can make things better or you can make better things. And we use a slew of synbio techniques to widen the funnel of the kinds of chemistry we can get at. Now, when you have all of this, then you can say, great, you know, given that humans have been exposed to, and there's a lot of data behind the use of these, can you actually safely begin human trials and perhaps do some preclinical development at risk? And we are completely fans of that pathway and are exploring multiple ways to do this for both topical and oral products. Wow, that's fantastic. I didn't realize the scale of the output. It's really remarkable. Founder-led bio is having a moment. We're living through it. I feel like every week there's more talk of we're going through this transition from the yeah. studio model to the founder-led bio model. And you have to be one of the few poster childs or one of the many now poster childs. Well, why do you think it's happening now? And where do you think the founder-led bio movement is in five years? That's a great question. Folks always ask me, what is tech bio and how is it different from biotech? So I'll go ahead and define that first before riffing on where I think it's headed. I've always learned and thought about biotech is where biology is the technology, right? So classically, Amgen and Genentech used cells to produce human erythropoietin or human insulin. Biology was the technology that delivered medicine. Tech bio is deservingly the complete opposite of those two terms, is where some new technology, so laboratory or computational, drives the biology you pursue. And this could be changing where you look in chemical space, like in Veda, or how you integrate phenomic data into models of biology, like recursion. And I think it's really cool and very different from biotech, right? And I like the fact that this is fundamentally driven by people that are techno-optimists, investors, stakeholders that have seen how the internet has changed the way we communicate or actually order food or transport ourselves and are saying, what are other ways in which advances in software or hardware technology could affect the world? As well as people that are completely astute and focused on the business of drug discovery and biotech. But going back to the founder-led bio movement, I think the distinct feature is that these are companies and founders that are building for the long term. For a long time, investors that were in the business of biotech built a certain model or where you go after a certain pathway or a group of assets or a set of indications and they may have an underlying common theme or even maybe a platform underneath them, but they were largely built to sell. Like when would this biotech company be acquired? How do we make it attractive initially for partnership and then later for M&A? A big difference is if I talk to my peers or if I look at my own self in the mirror, I'm not building in Veda to get an exit through M&A. I don't have one asset. I have a portfolio. I don't have drug discovery. I have six industries in my 100-year vision. And I think that's a combination of maybe this moment in technology, the incredible success that techno-optimist investors have had, even though the pessimists may now say all of that was because of extremely low interest rates for the last 30 years. We'll never know. 
But the truth is people made a lot of returns and completely and fundamentally altered the way we live today. And I'd say, why not? The more people that join the movement, the diversity of funders and founders that exist in this space means different ideas. Considering that we have 95% of diseases that don't have an FDA-approved treatment, I would say all comers should be welcome. And we should question any and all assumptions and use technology and good old common sense to solve it. So five years from now, I'm hoping we don't talk about biotech and tech bio as two different things. And we just talk about humanity and all of the different tools we have in our arsenal to find new medicines. I love that. Six industries. Wow, you're keeping the bar low there for yourself. Um, so at Bio, we think a lot about clinical trials. We think a lot about the technology applications to drive clinical trial efficiency. I'm sure you're thinking a lot about how to drive efficiencies there too. Where do you think the biggest impact can be for technology and trials? Yeah. You know, if you think about the drug discovery process, I think of it as three main stages. One is identify the biology you want to pursue. The second is drug that biology with some kind of modality. It could be a small molecule, an oligo, an antibody. And third is efficiently translate once you have a drug candidate. I actually think most of the focus has been in tech bio and applying tech to biology and drug discovery has been in one and two. Folks have found it easy to say, okay, here's the evolution of laboratory methods Here's novel access to data and algorithms. I'm just going to do more of it, do it differently. I'm going to innovate on laboratory methods and find new biology. Recursion is a great example. The great generation of spatial transcriptomics and multiomics companies are an example there. On the chemistry side, and Veda said, let's actually bring AI and machine learning to solve this problem of how do we access the chemistry that's all around us, which has to be the most relevant place to find new medicines. You may have Dell companies that are doing approaching the same problem. I think companies like Wire are actually a minority in this space. No one's asking how do we actually translate medicines into the clinic more efficiently. Like a great example, we have assets in development for pain and itch, and are actively thinking about how do we run these trials efficiently. And I discovered that even though your Apple Watch is perhaps the most sensitive gyrometer you have on you that can detect itch constantly, or at least itch while you're sleeping, you can't actually use it in the trial because no one has validated the Apple Watch as a way to measure itch. And unless Apple spends its money doing that, no one's going to validate the Apple Watch because they don't own it. There's this almost perverse set of incentives that prevent the modernization of trials. And I like that Wile is at least doing that for the executional and process-oriented things. But boy, would I love to see a world where the Apple Watch tells you if you walked enough or you get tired after walking or if you've itched. Right now, and you'll know this better than me, Simon, when we're looking at endpoints, investigators tell us, oh, use something called NRS, right? Which is a patient just says how itchy they feel. I know as someone that itches, like every human, that can be incredibly inaccurate. What I would absolutely love is a device that just tells me how many times someone woke up because they were itchy. And the fact that we don't have that, I think, is a galling problem. But then when I put my business hat on as a sponsor that's responsible to the board, I don't want to take a risk 
and validate an instrument in addition to my therapeutic, right? So I would love to hear from you maybe on how you're thinking about this and where you see this space going. Well, that could be a podcast on its own, but I totally agree with you. Subjective endpoints, huge challenge in driving a lot of innovation and, and pruritus in particular. I think that the lack yeah. of objective endpoints there is a, is a huge challenge. Yeah, let's work together. We'll get rid of NRS and come up with something else. In the Absolutely. Future. Last question. Say you could talk to yourself three years ago and impart some wisdom on a younger Viswa building in beta. What would you say? Lots of lessons learned along the way. I'll share maybe three main ones. One is you only need one yes. On average, you need one yes a year. One yes from an investor, one yes from a partner. And every time you get a no, realize that it's probably a good thing, right? I think as Jeff Bezos said in his congressional testimony, something that again, in hindsight is brilliant, genius because of its simplicity. He was like, by definition, innovation comes from unlikely places. And so you're like, oh, every time you get a no, I think that's a sign that most people don't see the world the way you do. And as long as you get one, yes, keep moving forward. The second is just take one step. Someone told me as I was belaboring whether or not to start in Veda, life rewards you for what you do, not what you know. The world is a complex space and many of us are trained as scientists or engineers and we like to analyze. Turns out we'll never analyze beyond one degree of dependency. So just move forward, make the world, you know, a slightly less hazy place. And the third is invest in the process and not the outcome. So fall in love with building and view every opportunity and setback as a way for you to grow. As much as we would like to think we are in control, we're not. Outcomes are largely out of our control. So the thing we have is, well, I'm going to wake up and enjoy the challenge of trying to create something out of nothing. And that in and of itself is a victory. Thank you for the conversation today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google, and YouTube. 